welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Kirsten Lopez, and I'll be your host for this episode. On today's episode, we'll be chatting with Dr. Rebecca Gibson in bioanthropology, including her research on corsets and robot sex. Completing the group today is Emily Long, Dr. Chelsea Long, and thank you so much for being here, everyone. Thank you. Happy to be here. So happy to be here. It's so wonderful to hear everybody's voices. It's been too long, and in this COVID environment, it's wonderful to have some kind of human connection. Exactly. <laughs> and another change in the intro uh, that's really exciting, it is now Dr. Chelsea Slotton. Woohoo! Thank you, yes. <laughs> so that will be from here on out, obviously. So Rebecca, we have you in here to talk about some of your research that you have um, and an upcoming publication, uh, specifically a book. Uh, Would you like to kind of start us off by giving us a little peek into what kind of research that you do? Absolutely. So I have three main research interests, Um, my dissertation and my upcoming book that will be published later this fall. The title of the corseting book is The Corseted Skeleton, A Bioarchaeology of Binding, and it's coming out this fall from Palgrave Macmillan. Is it available on Amazon or any other platforms? It will definitely be available on Amazon. Um, Probably any of the major buying sources. Barnes & Noble will have it. Uh, They had my first book. Wonderful. That's pretty sweet. It's on corsets and what they do to skeletons. I specifically look at the period 1700 to 1900 in England and France. Um, so I'm happy to talk about that for as long as you guys want me to. That's coming through Palgrave Macmillan this uh, September or October. And then my second research interest, which is basically a hobby, is um, robot sex, robots and human sexual interaction looked at through the lens of science fiction. That Ooh. book came out last year. That book is called Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, an Investigation in Science Fiction and Fact, also through Palgrave Macmillan. And then my third research interest, which I don't know if you guys know about, is um, Gender and the Supernatural. And there is going to be a third book coming out with Lexington Press. It's an edited volume on gender, death, liminality, and the supernatural. And I've got um, people talking about vampires. I've got people talking about zombies. I've got a Frankenstein chapter in there. It's going to be amazing. That sounds so cool. That's fabulous. I can't wait, actually, to read any and all of those, honestly. Uh, yes. So let's kick it off with corsets, uh, because that's something like you're saying that you've been doing for a while and um, is one of the reasons uh, that you talked us into. Well, I mean, you're just off generally. Um, <laughs> what are some of the themes, I guess, when it comes to what corsets do to the skeleton um, that you would like to highlight? I mean, I know Emily mentioned that she's worn a corset. I myself have worn and made a number of corsets, but Chelsea has worn a lot of corsets. Into a couple of corsets. (laughs) (laughs) 
Because um, there's just I, something kind of fun about them, too. Or it's just like, it yeah. does make me wonder, and, I, and I'm sure you'll get into this, Rebecca, like mm-hmm. what it does to the skeleton, but it's just the ones that I've worn haven't really been, because um, it's for costumes, for plays and interpretation and stuff. And they were more for, it's felt like posture and the dress as opposed to like sucking the life out of me. Right. Like, making me all kinds of busty. And so... <laughs> I'm, I'm just so curious to see, like, the range and what they've been used for and all that. So that's that's one of the things that I address in the book, is why women were doing this. Um, we tend to look at this either as costuming from a 21st century perspective or as something that was imposed on women, that women were doing this in sort of a recreation of the patriarchal beauty standard of the day. But this was a practice that lasted over 400 years, and it's, it's very comparable to today's bras and panties, or a little earlier in history. I mean, I'm old enough to remember bras and girdles. So this is something that is both a fascinating look back into history and also a standard everyday undergarment that these women wore. So what I look at specifically um, is I look at it, well, it's it's multifaceted. The book is multifaceted. I look at both the skeletons themselves, but also I look at how women culturally related to their own corsets and what they were saying through the literature that they produced. Um, and of course, that's you know that's only a really small part of it because women didn't write much for publication during that time period. So. It's, it's always um, good to take that nuanced view and to ask those questions about, like, why did they do this and what was the purpose of it? And you mentioned support and posture and the other garments that you wear with the corset, and that was a large part of it. Hmm. They wanted to create a pleasing silhouette, but they also had these massive skirts, these massive bodices to support with the corsetry and to um to sort of drape from it specifically the skirts would drape from the corset and it really provided that support and structure and um and helped them continue to wear the fashions that they were wearing Mm -hmm. to my understanding that also the the corsets were a big part of of distributing the weight in the skirts especially when you get to the really multi-layered skirts in like the 1840s 1850s before the crinolines were invented um, or any era where they had the big really floofy um, and heavy pieces so it didn't like bruise the hips and such Absolutely. In fact, the reform movement, what, we get a lot of things wrong about this period of history. And one of those things is the idea that the dress reform movement, which was basically the 1870s onward, were trying to um, eliminate the corset. They weren't trying to eliminate the corset. They were trying to make it slightly less restrictive so that women could you know, bend in the middle if they wanted to but also so that the, um, the clothing that was being draped from the corset maybe just wasn't hanging off of the waist. They were trying to give more options to women 
rather than take away that undergarment that they'd been using for hundreds of years. Mm. Is that the period with like the big pantaloons? Like Yes. <laughs> I'm a fan of pantaloons myself. Now, I know a lot of people who don't necessarily go to friend fairs uh, or wear corsets on a regular basis, <laughs> unlike those of us on this podcast. Um, <laughs> us nerds, we can't help it. <laughs> their exposure to corsets um, is probably or potentially limited to what they see on screen. And there's that kind of really common portrayal or trope of a woman holding on to the end of a four-poster bed or uh, something and her uh, lady's maid standing behind her with her foot up on her back, yanking at the corset strings. Realistic? <laughs> no? <laughs> Absolutely not realistic. Most women, first of all, didn't have ladies' maids. Um, there was massive, massive disparities in wealth during this time period everywhere from women who went to court, who obviously would have had ladies' maids, to women who might have only owned one corset or pair of stays that they made themselves and who had no people to look after them, so to speak, women who were supporting themselves. So most of the corsets, um, most of them are made in such a way that you can take them off and put them on by yourself. Either there's lacing in the front that you can do up yourself, or there's hooks in the front and lacing in the back, so you put the corset on, hook it in the front, and then pull a pair of laces from uh, from the side of the back, basically, so that you can tighten it yourself. Hmm. Um, but there, there are a lot of different ways that you can create this type of garment where it's not an encumbrance to the person wearing it. And I think we see also a lot of ways in which the corset can be tailored to the specific wearer by that wearer herself. So some people wore them tight and others probably didn't. And what we see in movies, in uh, advertisements from the time period, in the popular media surrounding corseting is that very, very small waist but that wasn't necessarily what they were going for, just a small er waist. So mm. have this nuance that is left out of the discussion, which I'm trying to put back in. Mm -hmm. That makes sense if you're thinking about today's modern magazines. Nobody looks like the models that are in the magazines. They're rail thin to a point where it's, it's kind of disturbing. <laughs> and it's like, nobody actually looks like that, but it's still considered an ideal. Then it makes sense that would be the exact same for advertisements back then. And honestly, that hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. I was like, well, that would be the ideal, but not everybody has a, what is it, like a 17 inch waist? <laughs> well, not only that, but like in, uh, what a lot of people think of with that tight lacing um, would be like late, 1800s into the Edwardian era and that was all either illustrations which is what you're saying Emily with advertising but then you also had the photographs from the Edwardian in in like 1880s 1890s um and for that I don't know 40 years or so it was all I mean photoshopping was a thing back then like the, the ability to 
to manipulate photos has been around since the beginning of photography, pretty much, or pretty close. So um, some of the photos that you see around are, are a little disturbing and people will point to those, but they're not real. Absolutely. But also you do have through the use of long-term corseting, a distinct change of the shape of the rib cage. So this is the the bio version. Into that. Would that also potentially have had an effect on size? Because one thing I've always been curious about my entire family, including my like parents, my grandparents, we all like history things. So if somebody held on to my great grandmother's um, clothing and she did wear a corset every day. Whoa. And when she died at 103 years old, I think she was 101. Um, her corset was 19 inches around the waist when it was yep. stitched. Yep. So what I found in the bioarchaeology is the the effect, I like to compare it to orthodontic braces. Um, I like to compare it to this because, first of all, it's it's an accurate comparison. It's taking one perfectly functional um, skeletal system and changing it into a more pleasingly shaped but still perfectly functional skeletal system. Hmm. But also because the effects can be drastic and they are lifelong. So... When you have compression on growing bone, and most women during this time did start corseting relatively early, so, you know, 10, 12, 13, definitely before 16, so during that period where there's still a lot of skeletal growth going on, um, when you start having both compression and shaping on growing bones, you're going to have a change in size and a change in shape. A lot of the women that I have measured did have rib circumferences or diameters that were very, very small that we would think of as um, as disturbingly small from our perspective, but they also lived in a city and in a time period where malnutrition was rampant, where we didn't know about... Um, things like vitamin supplements or necessary minerals where nobody was focusing on having a balanced diet. You know, there was a lot, Mm -hmm. there were a lot of factors going on here. So if you put all of those factors together into a corset, what you're going to end up getting is a smaller, rounder rib cage. The human rib cage is wider than it is deep. That's why we look the way we do. And so you're seeing um, rounder rib cages much closer to a circle than an oval. And you're seeing downward facing spinous processes that are sort of overlapping each other um, from that downward torquing pressure. And you're also seeing those 17, 18, 19 inch waists that we hear about. Um, But it doesn't seem like it would have actually affected the longevity of the women. I'm certainly finding it didn't affect the longevity of the women in the um, sample that I looked at. And I now have looked at 3,851 <laughs> records. These are, um, That's impressive. These are this isn't skeletons, unfortunately. These are archival records, but I did collate the data myself. That's um, amazing. And 
the women averaged, uh, so I looked at women from 16 to the end of their potential lifespan. In this case, we had one woman who was 109 when she died. Wow. So a span of women from 16 to 109. And if they lived to 30, they were very, very likely to live to 60 and beyond. Hmm. So we're not seeing the whole died young or truncated lifespan because of coarsening or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks, it sounds like it's more around childbearing age is the constraint possible. Yeah, but I also didn't see many who died in childbirth. The, um, the records keepers oh. at the St. Bride's Parish were uh, relatively meticulous about recording cause of death if they knew it. Nice. And childbirth deaths account for 4% of the total oh. death. Oh, wow. Um, which is above average for that time period, but below what we expect given our understanding of pop culture references to corseting. Yeah. And just to, out of curiosity, so the waistline, so right at that base of the rib, is that about where the waistline would be? Because I think a lot of folks think like, oh my gosh, 17 inches, my hips are way bigger than that. The waistline was much, much higher too at that point where it's thinner in women regardless, right? Absolutely. That's definitely what the corsets themselves looked like. And I looked at four different corseting collections for this study. Um, The Victorian Albert Museum, the Fashion Museum in Bath, St. Fagan's Museum in Cardiff, and the National Museum of Scotland's collection in Edinburgh. And basically, I'm seeing all sorts of variety in size, um, from a pregnancy corset, which was, of course, very, very large, to a uh, very tiny one that had a 55 centimeter circumference, which is approximately 17 and a half inches. Oh, my gosh. Um, But yeah, I'm seeing a lot of variety in the sizes, and I'm seeing consistently that if you were to put them on where the smallest point would hit would definitely be at the bottom of the ribs. Okay. I'm actually, I'm feeling that on myself right now. I'm like, yeah, that is the, like the thinnest point. And if my waistline is like my, I would look so much thinner if I, my clothing hit that way too. (laughs) (laughs) I actually used to fight my mother over it. She wanted to measure my waist there, but I'm very high waisted. And I would be yanking the skirts down to my hips so they would feel right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Well, that sounds like a good place to uh, round out this first discussion. We will go to break and we will continue our conversation on robot sex. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account? And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great. Thank you very much for listening, and hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. 
All right, and thanks for coming back with us to our next section. Uh, we're going to dive in with Rebecca now on robot sex of all really topics. Risky. So, <laughs> let's uh, dive in, I suppose. Uh, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about what the research is? I mean, people I'm sure have all sorts of strange, fascinating, and unpredictable things flying through their minds at this moment. You want to straighten out what that picture should look like? <laughs> Absolutely. So I actually uh, answered a call for papers about five years ago now asking about sci-fi and sexuality. And I thought, oh, hey, this is something I'm really interested in. And that paper was rejected. Um, very kindly either. <laughs> But the idea stuck in the back of my mind, and eventually my wonderful editor at Palgrave, um, Mary Al-Sayed, approached me, and um, she, she came like to one of the AAAs, to the American Anthropological Association conference, and asked if I wanted to meet with her about developing this idea into a book. And at that point, it was just sort of this STEM idea in my brain, like, let's talk about why we're so attracted to artificial technology, why we like artificial tech as companions, why we write science fiction that both projects and reflects that desire for robot companionship. So I developed it into a book that looks at the Blade Runner mythos um, from three different uh, examples of the Blade Runner story. So I start with the novella from which the movies came, um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And then I looked at the Blade Runner movie from 1982 and Blade Runner 2049, which came out in 2017. And I sort of used those as examples of how we drive the story forward and then the story sort of drives the technology forward and the science forward. And I included things about haptic feedback and the newest ways in which we use computers to interface with robotics and the ethics of robot sex and sex dolls that are being created with robotic or artificial intelligence technology. And it was this really interesting sort of deep dive into a little bit of our collective psyche about how we um, reach for companionship that isn't necessarily human and what being human or being human enough really means to us in terms of romance and sex. Okay, and what was that book called? The... Um, the book is Desire in the Age of Robots and AI, an investigation in science fiction and fact. That is fascinating. Thank you. Because, I mean, I'm so entrenched in archaeology that I don't get to, you know, traverse too often over to anthropology. And that seems like such a unique field in a way of looking at culture and how we reflect. I mean, I, you can look at consent, you can look at companionship, you can look at loneliness, you can look at, I mean, all these different things and how they're affecting each other, like globalism and, you know, as we're more connected, are we more lonely? And I don't know, it's just, that sounds so interesting. And I had, didn't really make as 
that large a connection with like the Blade Runner movies. And I'm now thinking of all these other movies that have robots or um, things like Alexa, you know. (laughs) The original conception for the book was I wanted to look at all of the genres and look at all of the things in all of the genres. So it was going to be like TV and movies and books and multiple examples in each. And my editor sort of had a talk with me like, you really have to narrow it down a bit. <laughs> you only yeah. have 65,000 words to work with here. <laughs> so yeah. there, is there going to be a part two? <laughs> I don't know. Um, and part of that is the fact that I narrowed it down. So in order to make a part two, I would have to focus on a different, you know, either a different franchise or a different aspect. Mm -hmm. And although the technology is moving very quickly, um, it's not moving that quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe in a, a dozen years or so, 10 years or so, I'll write a sequel. Um, but also, like, people keep sending me the articles, which is really sweet. But oh, nice. it's my job to know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is so interesting. I mean, would you say going so far as so here we have actual like physical robots, but would you count something like with AI? Like, um, I'm trying to remember, like, uh, in the Big Bang Theory, I think Raj becomes like obsessed with Alexa. Mm-hmm. and and like falls in love with the Alexa voice and creates a relationship out of that and then that other movie her yep. yeah yeah would that would that count in this kind of idea of relationships with tech with a technological thing that's not actually human absolutely um so you have those you have oh what was it Lars and the Real Doll was one that showed the physicality of it. Um, Or sorry, Lars and the Real Girl, because they were avoiding copyright issues, I think. Um, And then there's there's a couple of others. Uh, Lucy was a very bad example of this. (laughs) But oh, where she becomes like she becomes a computer computer. in a way. (laughs) So definitely, there's that aspect. Um, But. since I am a physical anthropologist or a biological anthropologist, rather, um, I did sort of want to keep it to that idea of physicality, how we mm-hmm. use these things to um, to be physical, tangible aspects of relationships that are otherwise missing or damaged or, you know, things that are replacing other things in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, through the Blade Runner stories, my favorite, bar none, is the most recent movie, Blade Runner 2049, because by that point, you have, you still have the replicants. You have, um, replicants are basically living machines, so there is a mechanical component, but they are, um, they're so, they're shaped like humans and they're indistinguishable from humans as long as they're working properly and, they um they can't reproduce but they can do basically everything else that a human can do and they're much much stronger um but then you have the introduction of a new type of sex object which is a hologram and the primary replicant's primary relationship is with his companion hologram 
and mm -hmm. she's not tangible. She's a hologram. So she invites a prostitute over who is also a replicant so that she can sort of merge her not completely intangible, semi-tangible being with that replicant prostitute so that she can make love to the main character. Huh. It's beautifully done. A really, really touching mm -hmm. scene. And it really shows that um, no matter who we are, as long as we have that humanity and that persona, that personification of ourselves, we desire that companionship. We really want there to be people who we can touch and understand and feel that they understand us. But yeah. then doesn't that bring in the need for some kind of sentience? Because, I mean, all the cur like the way sex robot dolls are going, it's not like they understand so much as no, we're bonding. Kind of, I, I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> it's possible we'll get there eventually or we'll get close mm -hmm. enough. And yeah. in this particular case, close enough is really defined by the person who has the robot. So if something can say, I love you and you believe it, is that enough? Mm -hmm. and then again, yeah. there's unfortunately the sort of darker flip side. If somebody, if something can say, stop that, you're hurting me mm. and you believe it. So here we get into the ethical considerations because yeah. when we get to that point where they are believable, where they are relatable and realistically, if not sentient, at least close to, then we get into that problem of ethics and legal responsibilities towards what we have created. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think there's another kind of interesting ethical uh, conundrum maybe that I would like your input on. It is my understanding, and uh, if I am wrong, please correct me, but that the woman who voices Siri was not actually told that her voice was going to be used for Siri, um, and imagine her surprise and her you know, husband's surprise when all of a sudden the person that he's asking you know, to set a reminder or whatever has the voice of his wife. And a lot of times, um, Robots can be voiced off of, um, or can be voiced by by real people because synthetic voices that I've heard have never sounded particularly great, or they can look like real people. And at what point do you have copyright of your own image? So if a stalker wanted to make a doll of you, you could say no, or you could say I didn't agree for my voice to be used like that. Yeah. Uh, well, some of that, I think, is starting to be touched on with um, when uh, the Star Wars, um, the, the most previous trilogy, the, the last three. Um, the numbering's they, confusing anyway. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, the most recent ones, we'll just leave it as that. <laughs> um, where they, they do begin using... Uh, well, not begin, but they do use in, I think it's technically seven, um, they use the likeness and voice of a deceased actor. Mm -hmm. And 
And that was something that they did have to go through a lot of the copyright because there, there were legal issues around that. And so after that or with that movie, I don't remember which, to my understanding, and I could be off on this. So if anyone has additional information to post, that would be really cool to send us. Um, is that uh, the rest of the cast had to sign contracts that Disney could continue to use their likeness after death for the films. So that's where, like, in Nine, in the final one, you know... um, Do we really think it's going to be the final one? (laughs) Well, it's... It's a moneymaker. They'll keep going until... Yeah, there there will be (laughs) spinoffs. is like you know you still have leia appearing in the final one post-mortem of actress so i think that kind of steps into the same legal or at least a similar legal bound um a film that um another film that reminds me of that a little bit less this copyright issue but more of that ethical issue uh that chelsea brought up is ex machina oh my god i love ex machina have you written anything on ex machina i'd I'd be really interested on your take on that so it it is actually um i do use it as an excerpt in one of the portions of the book i'm blanking Mm. on chapter it is at the moment but it's it's in there because that particular take on ai is fascinating and this is this ties directly back into what chelsea asked about likenesses and permissions and you know where does your body stop and somebody else's body start and the i I don't know the legalities of it at all I do know a little bit about contracts, having signed a few of them, not many, but a few. Um, but with, the, for example, the voice of Siri, she probably signed something on the order of what in publishing at least would be a copyright transfer contract, something that gives the right to the company to use whatever they take from you in perpetuity, which is crappy, but it's pretty standard. Um, so yeah, but with Ex Machina, one of the interesting things that I bring up in this book is that when we create these things, when we work with likenesses or vocal qualities or the creation of something that could approach sentience, we need to be very careful about how we write what it is we're writing, how we give those commands, who's work and likenesses and what have you are used and whose are explicitly not able to be used. Um, So basically what I write about Ex Machina is, sorry, spoilers for anybody who has not seen this movie. Um, There is one character, Kyoko, who in the middle of the movie is preparing sushi and she's got a very amazing knife. The, The knife is fantastic and she's cutting sushi she's cutting fish with this knife very deliberately and you can hear the strike of the knife on the countertop that she's using and then later in the movie she um she understands that her creator has betrayed her and that her fellow ai ava is planning to escape and she's um she's gonna help ava escape 
And she stabs her creator with the same knife. And it is this beautiful bit of cinematography where you can see him realize that this creation that he has made for one purpose, which is to please him, um, has now turned on him using the tools he gave her. And certainly the commands are different. The commands that we would use to give an AI to say, cut this fish into very precise pieces is different from a command that could be used to stab a human being. And apparently he forgot to make sure that somewhere in her programming she couldn't do that. So we need to be deliberate about this, both in the ethics, in the legality, in the programming, to make sure that these aren't being used for re revenge porn, or these aren't being used for exploitative purposes, or these aren't being used for pedophilia, or these aren't being used mm -hmm. for all of the stuff that you can um, take the most base desires of humanity and use these wonderful creations for. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. That, that also, um, one last thing, that brings me back around. Has anyone read um, the um, any of Asimov's work with regard to the laws of robotics? Oh, absolutely. No, I haven't. The iRobot. I've um, seen iRobot. <laughs> yes, so the film is very different from the book. Well, so I will say, um, Kirsten, while you're looking for that, I actually had an interesting conversation with my partner earlier who is a computer scientist about kind of how bad computers are at taking sources of information from two disparate, or types of information from two disparate sources and combining them to come to their own conclusions computers kind of like do the thing that they're programmed to do. They're not great at inferring. So like in the case of X uh, Machina and, and maybe the technology will get there at some point. Um, but that's actually a big challenge in um, computer coding that, you know, some people are apparently looking at, but that, that kind of, yeah, we can tell it the computer that two plus two is four um but that doesn't necessarily help us with like three three plus three i mean that's not i'm not a computer person so i'm not necessarily explaining it really well or two they're plus not three. intuitive they they do yeah. what you tell them to do not what you want them to do right um, yeah. which is one of the big problems i have when i try to code because um <laughs> I, I'm like, why can't you do A, B, and C all at the same time? And my partner's just like, because you have to tell it to do A, and then you have to tell it to do B, and then you have to tell it to do C. <laughs> but they all go together. Why can't they just make it all one, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> but then I guess that means, I guess then what makes me think about all of this is do we, how far do we want robots to be able to have that level of, like, do we want them to be so programmed to not be able to do certain things? Or are we trying to have robots achieve a certain level of humanity to the point where it almost reflects free will? Yeah. And that's the, the ethical challenge, too, is how do you create something with free will and then try and control it? Mm -hmm. um, there's, an, 
there's an interesting example of that um, particular conundrum in Sophia. Do you guys know about Sophia? No. Uh-uh. Sophia. Conundrum of that in Frankenstein. <laughs> there is, and yeah. that's where this all started. Which <laughs> also in the book. Um, but Sophia is a creation of Hanson Robotics. Um, and she is a walking, talking, social robot. And she was recently given Saudi Arabian citizenship. Oh, um, yes, I have heard about her. Yep, which is just fascinating. But her, um, so her responses are programmed. She will take whatever input you give her in the terms of the questions that you ask her or the things that you say to her, and she will come out with a variety of programmed responses. She's good at timing. Um, so there's not like abnormally long pauses or anything. She's good mostly at interpretation. She tells jokes. They're not great jokes, but she tells them and you can tell <laughs> that they're supposed to be funny. Yeah. At one point recently, she was asked about um, something about like, have you ever been in love? And she said, no, I don't have sex. And so here we have that, once again, that question of programming and sentience and what is and is not deliberate and what is or is not intuitive about how computers work. And the only reason she would have that particular answer to that particular question is because somebody programmed it. And yeah. so we're, we get back into that idea of the programming reflecting the biases of the creator and then the creation reflects the biases of the creator and we can go straight back to Frankenstein. Yeah. Mm -hmm. hmm. So before we uh, tra like transition to the next section, cause we're about at that, we're, we're at that time. Um, I, I did find, cause I'm like, I kind of have a handle on it, but I wanted to, to get the three laws, um, uh, robotics uh, that are presented, I think, in the Foundation series prior to use in the a, in the iRobot, but I could be wrong. Um, it's been a while since I read his work. Uh, so the three laws are as follows. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. And part of the Foundation series is exploring each of these laws. And so anyone interested in these conundrums. These are were written, um, I think he wrote these in like the early 60s. Um, early sci-fi is fascinating. Uh, so the second <laughs> law is a robot must obey orders given it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Meaning, you know, you cannot you injure or through action. Yeah. Um, and then the third is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So it prioritizes human life and then its own life. So the, the idea is, is that being artificial it is then lesser. So the, the way that Asimov sets up the world of robots in this early sci-fi 
um, is that they are subservient and lesser too. So as far as um, this, and this gets into the programming question that you were talking about, Rebecca, like this would have to be part of its programming. Yeah. Um, but if you get into like true sentience, how much can this actually apply? Exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's a huge question. And then there's also the question of, um, are we even capable of making a robot that won't prioritize its own survival? Like if yeah. we get to sentience, yeah. I think there's also a question of like humans have put themselves at the top of the food chain, the apex predator for a really long time, not just against robots, but against other species that we share this planet with. And I think there's some questions about what right do we have to impose our will on everything in such a way that mm -hmm. impacts every single living being on this planet. But I think that's a broader conversation. Yes. Well, and you could even include other humans in that. It's the in yes. out group. Yep. Cool. Well, it is definitely time to uh, mosey on. So thank you for that. <laughs> fascinating and i'm sure we could go on for ages longer on the ethical discussion around ai and mm -hmm. throw in some uh cultural anthropologists into there we can make a day out of it <laughs> um so we're gonna go ahead and move on um after this break to gender and the supernatural so stay with us during this break why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing, all the way to just random subjects that interest us. You can also see the backlog of episodes, and it's also a way you can contact us. Again, thanks for listening. And thanks for coming along with us to the last section. And thank you, everyone, for holding through the most boring of topics, I'm sure, for everyone. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, robots, sex, corsets, oh, same old, same old, every day. And now, now we get to um, some even more exciting topics, gender and the supernatural. Um, so this is very intriguing, and I really wish that Sarah was here with us to poke in. I know she's going to enjoy this last section. And Rebecca, you want to give us a, a little synopsis of your work? Sure. Actually, we did. Um, my co-editor and I actually did talk to Sarah about this specific thing. So I'm not sure if that has gone up on her podcast yet, but. It is out there, and I can now. And this give... is for Sarah, who's the our Archie Fantasies yes. podcast, and yes. she's on the podcast a lot. Yes. Perfect. So this also sort of stemmed from a different person's call for papers. Um, my sometimes writing partner and I uh, responded to a call for papers about zombies because. This is actually a pretty funny story. I've never quite forgiven him for this, and he's very well aware of it. Um, but my previous anthropology professor, when I was an undergrad, taught a um, taught a senior seminar on the anthropology of zombies, and he taught it the year after I left. Hmm. And I was so cranky, I made him write <laughs> about it with me. 
So we answered this call for papers about culture and zombies. And I was like, I want to do zombies and gender. And I want to look at World War Z. So that paper is still out there on its way to getting published. And then um, I was approached by Lexington Press, which is a division of Roman and Littlefield, about turning my dissertation into a book. But as you have heard earlier in this podcast, my dissertation was already on its way to becoming a book. So I wrote back to Lexington and I said, uh, no, but I have this really awesome other idea. How about a edited volume with my partner, Jay Vanderveen, who talks about zombies and I can talk about other supernatural beings and we'll get a lot of really cool people to write for us. And so this became our edited volume, Monstrous Males, Fatal Females, Gender, Supernatural Beings, and the Liminality of Death. And this is in process still. We've taken a bit of a breather because of COVID. So we've pressed everything back a bit, but we should be getting a few submitted chapters basically by October. And then we should have a completed manuscript by December or January to send on to our publisher. That is so cool. And so you said an edited volume. Are there other authors involved um, uh, beyond you and your partner? Yes. Um, so we put out a general call for papers to most of the anthropology boards and then also to um, a couple of fan studies boards. And so we have 14 wonderful authors. No, wait a minute, 13. We just had one drop. Uh, but we have 13 wonderful authors. We're going to cover everything from um, like three different versions of the vampire mythos. Uh, Jay is taking zombies again. I'm doing one of the vampire chapters. Um, Augustine Fuentes and his partner, D.V. Snidely, are doing Frankenstein and gender. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a, someone doing uh, Aliette de Baudard's universe of um, sentient spaceships. So we're oh. looking at things that are sort of beyond the natural, as well as being your typical supernatural, things that were never alive to begin with. Like um, Farscape type of spaceships? Uh, I actually don't know how to answer that, having never watched Farscape. Oh, um, no worries. <laughs> But if you if you do read uh, that type of book, I do recommend Alia de Bodard's um, book, The Tea Master and the Detective, which is where I think this particular mythos begins. And then she has a couple of other stories set in the same universe. Um, we also have we have a person working on haunted houses. So Ooh. what gender are the haunters? the houses themselves and what gender are the people who are haunted and why does this keep coming up um, in story after story? I think they're including the yellow wallpaper. Which oh, really? And that's like technically a haunted house story, but it's a very different take on it. So we're mm -hmm. really looking for a whole bunch of diverse viewpoints on what is gender? How does that mesh with how we look at supernatural beings where does gender go when you die, which is something that will definitely be interesting in the Frankenstein paper and in the vampire papers. Nice. It's going to be a real good, cohesive book once we get it all together. 
That sounds really neat. Wow. Um, it's so on an, a total side note, I have been, um, really killing time of late. And one of the ways in which I've been doing this is finding good YouTube channels. Mm. Um, and one of my favorite is ask a mortician. Oh, yeah. that's such a wonderful one. Oh my gosh. Their podcast and, is great too. Yes. So she, some of the, her topics on that show remind me a lot of what you were just talking about. Absolutely. There's a lot of crossover. Yeah. Well, is Monstrum. Do you know Monstrum? I do not. It's now out with, damn, I'll have to look it up and send it to you guys. But it just recently combined with it. You can still search Monstrum, M-O-N-S-T-R-U-M. And it's a really interesting explanation of a lot of um, diverse mythologies throughout the world. I specifically thought of Chelsea, actually, because they did a cat. I think it's Norwegian cat uh, that haunts people around Christmas time. Mm -hmm. that that's amazing. Really, I can't give you a name awesome. on it, but that's really cool. And so, and so, I'm sorry if I missed it. Monstrum, is it a podcast or YouTube? YouTube channel. Awesome. Okay, have that's to fun. check that out. But it's neat. I mean, it seems like most cultures have these really almost horrific <laughs> myths in a way that tackle a lot. Like, seem to be trying to explain their fears concerning maybe deep down a gender issue or something along those lines. So is, is there a specific thing you guys are trying to tackle when looking at these stories through this particular lens? So the original idea for the zombie paper that we were going to do, or that we're, we're still doing, it's still out there somewhere. Hasn't been, uh, been put to completion yet. Um, was I wanted to look at how zombies are gendered as zombies. Mm -hmm. And then after giving World War Z a deeper read through, it sort of became more about how um, two things happened. How war, the war on the zombies really degendered them. Mm -hmm. uh, and war does that in general. It's part of war theory is to turn your opponent into something that is not human and not human means not gendered in this particular case. Mm -hmm. But then again, I also wanted to look at how the author of World War Z looked at um, looked at the survivors and what gender did in the survivors. And that was really interesting and disturbing in a way he uh he wrote from 44 different perspectives which is an incredible amount of perspective mm -hmm. to carry through a book and he did that really successfully but only six of them were women so then we got into this discussion wow. of how gender works as a concept and whether or not it's carried through into generally supernatural stories um as a whole and so that's where this project came from, was the expansion of that. Um, like, are certain supernatural beasts more of one gender than they are the other? Um, and for this, you can take a look at such things as vampires. And for that, it really depends on which culture you're looking at. So if you look at European cultures where you're looking at the origin of vampires, the the first vampires in, in European cultures were almost uniformly male. 
And then you get to things like the 90s vampire live action role playing craze, which I was a huge mm -hmm. part of. And you had, uh, yeah, I wore fangs to school basically every day in high school. Um, My brother pretty much did the same. I, I have a very, <laughs> very uh, vague recollection of capes and, you know, yeah. painted Cape. nails and gothy stuff and vampire things. <laughs> Lots of Anne Rice in the house. Right. And for that, so if you're going Anne Rice, you definitely have more males than females. She was very into the homoerotic. But if you're going live action role playing, you have pretty much more of a gender balance. And mm. then you move forward. I know one of our authors is going to talk about um, Twilight and why Twilight was such a popular thing with young girls. Mm -hmm. And then I specifically am going to use um, two foreign vampire films, one of which was heavily female-centered and the other which was um, the only vampire in it is female and it was directed by a woman. So the first one is Only Lovers Left Alive. Oh, that is such a good movie. I did not expect it to be so hilarious for how dour it started out. Like, it is. I mean, it, you'd think it'd be so sad and like it, there's such funny parts. It's they make the vampires surprisingly silly. Yeah. I actually it's wrote so good. to my friend while I was watching it and said, okay, does it get less lethally depressing after the first 15 minutes? Because <laughs> I... And he's like, yeah, yeah, you need to keep watching. Okay, fine. And it was hilarious. Just it's so good. Funny. It's so good. But it's very female-centered. Mm -hmm. And again, spoilers for people who haven't seen it, but you have this... this um, this brooding on what's going to happen when the main character's sister shows up and they seem terrified of the sister and like the sister is this, this menace on society and everything and it turns out that she's like you know a 20 year old irresponsible flighty chick she and looks it, adorable she's adorable but oh my god I <laughs> But they've staked her out and left her for the sun. So annoying. <laughs> and then the second movie that I'm going to focus on for my portion of this book is um, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, hmm. which is an Iranian movie directed by a woman done in black and white. And the, the vampire in this particular case is avenging. She is gendered revenge on everybody oh. who is mistreating women in this small town it's oh, wow. so good and the soundtrack is absolutely banging like the soundtrack <laughs> is bar none an amazing piece of work so i'll be looking at those two i can't wait for our frankenstein chapter we just came off um, of the 200 year anniversary of Frankenstein so this is oh. not quite as timely as it would have been in 2018 but still pretty timely mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm really looking forward to it it's gonna be great nice that is so cool I'm I'm really looking forward to when it, it gets published because I mean it's I think everybody loves these kinds of stories I mean just as you said based with the the popularity of things like Twilight and whatnot it's it's yeah. all these stories that people enjoy. And I think it'll be really cool to get more of an anthropological twist yeah. uh, and view of these things. Cause it's like, why do we think of these things yeah. in these way? And what do they mean? And I, I, 
I'm very excited. It sounds yeah, good. I mean, like it's gonna be good. Take something like Frankenstein, where both the creator and the creature are male, mm-hmm. but a lot of the mm-hmm. spin-off work from it has been very female centric. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the sequels, The Bride of Frankenstein, and all of that, to things like Young Frankenstein, which featured several strong female characters. <laughs> Yeah. Run, run, run and say They had opinions and they had personalities and they weren't one dimensional and mm-hmm. it, yeah. it was still very female focused. And then um Dv Snively, who I mentioned is is working with Augustine on this particular chapter, she's a, a filmmaker and she has done work on retelling the Frankenstein myth from a female perspective. She also oh. writes the blog Beyond the Bechtel, which talks about movies and gender. So this mm-hmm. is going to be fascinating. Out of curiosity, so you said she's writing it from a, a female, so like a, as a character in the story, or just like in general, like if I were to look at this through a female lens, like is it going to be a fiction or nonfiction? Uh, so the piece that they're co-writing for this book is nonfiction. Okay, cool. But mm-hmm. the short film that she did called Bride of Frankie is done <laughs> with a female creator instead of a male creator. Huh. And it's just, it's beautifully, beautifully written and shot, and I love it to pieces. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Nice. I don't know. Some of this discussion is putting me in mind of like, I feel like there's a really good Buffy episode where a girl was brought back from the dead and what that does. And there's also the funny movie called Vamps, female creator, <laughs> female vampires. And some of the, the less standard things that are occasionally done um, that do serve to highlight some of the the gender disparity that you see in the kind of old-timey sci-fi world in fantasy. You know, now that you mentioned it, I'm really shocked we didn't get any submissions about Buffy. That's just... Yeah. It seems so natural now that you say it. Another chapter to be written. I watched all of Buffy. I could write that chapter in my sleep. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk then because we're down a writer. <laughs> uh oh, Chelsea, what'd you get yourself into? <laughs> I mean, <something> clearly. <laughs> something great. Well, any excuse to watch more Buffy. It's like, oh, it's research. It's research. Tell me about it. <laughs> so it sounds like a lot of this is looking at supernatural through pop culture. Yes, we didn't set out to do that exclusively. Um, We did aim it sort of at a pop culture audience for our call for papers because that was the context that I had. But that is how it turned out. Um, Let me think for a second about whether or not we have any people who are not. I mean, we had, but I'm not sure if we still do have people who are doing it for not a pop culture perspective. That is a really good question. And part of me is just curious. Um, I mean, it it's, doesn't diminish um, the idea of the book in my mind at all, but it definitely mm-hmm. shifts it. Because part of me, it, it's interesting to hear uh, you talk about a lot of like vampires and um, 
supernatural beings in pop culture are typically male, right? Yeah. Um, except for stuff that's been recently reformulated. Um, because in, from what, obviously I'm not a folklorist, we'll put that out there to start with, um, but what I do know of as a mini obsession of mine is reading folklore, folktales, and supernatural and um, uh, stories and superstitions is you get almost a majority female of like anything from Lilith to La Rigerona. You do see a good number of that, of those. You do see, I would say, less pure supernatural who are male than you do female. Um, and then again, some, you know, gender is washed away after death. So uh, he's never going to let me live this down, just as I never let him live down giving the class after I left. But Jay is actually doing a chapter that is much less pop culture. Um, he's talking about the zombies of Zora Neale Hurston, and she was an anthropologist. Hmm. Did anthropological work on the zombies of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. So mm -hmm. that's, and a whole bunch of her writing has just been re-released. Um, it was one of those, like, I don't know if it was lost or if it was archived badly or something, but she just had a whole bunch of new stuff, new quote stuff, um, be released. So he's using that to look at the zombie phenomenon and what gender, what happens to gender after death. Oh, that's fascinating. That's really cool. I do have to ask, and maybe it's a, a good closing question, too. Um, what kind of research are you interested in pursuing in the future? I mean, I know you're still ongoing with this current one, but if you're looking down the road at other books, what what's on the horizon? I actually have a, uh, a new book project in discussion with Paul Grave Macmillan, with my current editor. Mm -hmm. um, so this would be fourth book total and third book with Paul Grave which would be a companion piece to the corseting book. Mm -hmm. So in the corseted skeleton, a bioarchaeology of binding, one of the things that I do is I look very heavily at what doctors from the time period said about the practice of corseting. Oh. And one of the books, I was lucky enough, I don't even know how I pulled this off, but I was lucky enough to get a first edition copy of a 300-page treatise on corseting by a doctor written in 1908. Huh. He hates the practice. <laughs> he, yeah. He's, he's livid about it. He thinks it's fine for women over 30 who are done bearing children, but women under 30 should be fined or imprisoned for continuing to wear <laughs> bad corsets. Bad corsets in this case being defined as ones he did not sell them because, of course, <laughs> was also selling them corsets so um my next book project i hope we're still in discussions and covid has slowed down everything including the publishing business is to do an annotated translation of his book oh to really use all the knowledge i've gained all of the anthropological knowledge all of the theoretical knowledge all of the bioanth knowledge that i've gained to take it apart and to both translate it into English. It's currently in French. Okay. And then annotate that translation 
and bring in, you know, cultural conceptions of the corset and what the women were actually thinking and medical knowledge that we have gained since the advent of, you know, surgery that didn't kill people, you know, yeah. that type of thing. <laughs> so um, that's, that's what's in the immediate future. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. Uh, Rebecca, is there anything that you would like to close with? I'll just um, add in my social media presence. You can find me on Twitter at rgibsongirl, and you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thecorsetedskeleton. That's my author page, so all information about my publications goes there. And you can email me at rgibson.archeo at gmail.com. That's R-G-I-B-S-O-N dot A-R-C-H-A-E-O at gmail.com. Excellent. Well, that answered my other question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this was absolutely fascinating. We hope you come on the podcast again. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was wonderful. Yes, it was. And we can definitely dive into any and all of these topics into a deeper, a bit deeper uh, another time. Well, thanks again, everyone, for joining us here on the Women in Archaeology podcast. If you have a show idea or have some feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com for email. But you can also find us on Twitter at womenarchies. And also, if you're interested in supporting us, you can find us on Patreon at Women in Archaeology, and we will have a link for that below as well, where you can find some extra content and early access to each episode. And potentially stickers. And stickers. And uh, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Helps us know what you guys like to listen to and hear about. Gives us new ideas and keeping that podcast going. Awesome. It was wonderful having you all here. And we will see you again next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>